All right, so we are in the second, third part of what is this gospel. A quick recap of the first one. I'm not going to say much. But the first one, we said the gospel is a statement. It's a statement, and we defined what that statement was. We said the gospel is the good news. The good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus the Messiah, is the risen or resurrected Lord and impending judge of the world. That is the news, right, of the gospel, and we've been able to prove that. And we said, for you to understand that, you do need to look at the storyline of the Bible because statements need stories to be able to understand what they truly mean. So that was the gospel. The subject is the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son. It has to do with his work, his work in his incarnation, his work in his crucifixion, his work in his resurrection, his work in his coronation, and his work in his return. Those five are so important. Now, we then said, though they are, he's the subject of the news, they are objects. And from a positive standpoint, those that repent of their sins and trust in him, they receive blessings. And those blessings can be divided, the blessings they receive can be divided in three phases. In three phases. So last week, we then looked at phase one. And phase one basically changes your identity. It is on account of repentance and belief, which we said are two sides of the same coin. On account, on account of repentance and belief, you get a new status. You get a new status. That is, if, you are, uh, if your old status was an enemy of God, you become his friend. Your old status was that you were a slave to sin and to Satan. Now you become the free person of God. Your old status was that you were unclean, but now you are a saint. You were Satan's possession, but now you are God's possession. You were a slave before, but now you are a son and a daughter of God. You were unrighteous and you and uh, you were unrighteous before, but now you are righteous and just. And then finally, you were condemned before but now you are saved. So you receive those seven things I just spoke about. You receive reconciliation, liberation, sanctification, redemption, adoption, justification, and salvation. Why? Because of what Jesus did and because you apprehended it through faith and repentance. And it was a status given to you. It wasn't something that happened inside of you. It was something that happened to you, but not something that happened inside of you. Something was credited to you like credited to your account. So something real happened to you, whilst it's not something that is not something that subjectively happened. Alright? So that's what we learned that there is a gospel status. That is phase one. Now, though that was in phase one, what is objectively known, this identity, in phase two is now subjectively experienced. And so when we talked about gospel status in phase one, now we're going to start talking about gospel life. Gospel life. And that's what we're going to be treating today. Now, there's a lot of uh, uh, teaching around this, and sometimes I think a little bit of confusion. Um, not because people who are saying it are not are confused about what they're saying, but often uh, when it comes out and then you read other things in scripture, there is some confusion. And so we want to Try to bring some clarity, but the way you use the Bible in showing that, in proving the point, matters to you. It matters in trying to make that clarification. So what I'm going to do today is that in trying to go through all of this, we want to remember that the biblical writers wrote books, right? Paul did not write the gospel to John, 
right? John did not write the letter to the Ephesians. Now, when John wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote a book. He didn't write the whole Bible. He wrote a book. He was trying to say something through that. When Luke wrote the Acts, when he wrote Acts of the Apostles, Luke was the main writer. He was the only writer, the only human writer. And so he was trying to pass on certain themes to you as you go through that book. When Paul wrote the letter to Corinthians, the first letter to Corinthians, again, was Paul that was the writer. And so sometimes when you want to understand the consistency of what somebody is saying, go through the book. And so we're going to go through three things about the gospel life today, and we'll look at three authors primarily. All right? So we're going to see that in terms of gospel life, in terms of what the Holy Spirit does, because he's a central person here, we are going to see that it has an I, dim I dimension, it has a them dimension, and it has an us dimension. An I, them, and us. There's the gospel life, I, there's the gospel spread, them, and there's the gospel community. All right? Us. So let us start. So the first person we're going to look at is the writer John. John. Now I want to do something. Rather than go from the beginning to the end, I want to go from the end to the beginning. So let's turn to John chapter 20 verse 22. What is happening here? Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He's with his disciples. He's, he's soon not going to be with them. And so he does something that is very, it's very funny. In verse 22 of John chapter 20, he says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, they had not received it yet, but the breathing on them was symbolic because the word usually in Hebrew for uh, spirit is the same word for breath. And Jesus Christ being God is saying, I'm going to give you, I'm going to breathe on you, I'm going to give you my spirit. But notice what he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive. Had he spoken about this before? Because now we're towards the end of the book. Do these people understand what it is? Well, actually they do because now let's walk back. If you go to John chapter 14, we're going to verses 16 to 17. Now, the whole context of John 13 to 16 is what has been called the upper room discourse. Those four chapters. Jesus Christ is going to discuss with his disciples for the last time before he goes to his death. And you know, when somebody is about to die... Right? They say the most important things to those that they love. And they say, you know, very short, they want you to realize these are the most important things. Now, Jesus then says to them, he's trying to, he's trying to identify with their sorrow that he has been with them for about three and a half years, and now he's leaving. But then he then says something, don't think I'm going to leave you um, as orphans. And then in verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate that is just like me. I've been helping you, but now this advocate will be like me, and he will help you and be with you forever. Who is he? The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you. What does he mean by lives with them? Well, Jesus Christ was the one upon whom the, uh, who had the spirit upon him without measure. So as the spirit was with Jesus, he had been with the disciples. But then he said there's a transition. There's a transition. He lives with you, but what will now happen? He will be in you. In other words, Jesus, God has always promised to be with his people. And this time, though he had been now with the disciples, right, in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, he was still going to be with us, but now he was saying 
in another way, God will be in us. They was going to move from God with us to God in us. But then you ask, should they have known about this even before the upper room discourse? Had he promised already, had he spoken about giving the Spirit? Because what you will find in the book of John and teaching of the Spirit can go through three parts. It's basically something like this. Believe, receive, and relive. Believe, receive, relive. And so when he started with receive, the question then becomes, how do they receive? We've seen receive in 22, in 2022 and 14, 16 to 7. How can they receive? Go to chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, the Jews were about to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And at a certain point in verse 37, Jesus Christ had said to them, he said, look, all who are thirsty, they should come and drink from him. They, uh, they should come and drink from him. And then he says, because of this, whoever believes in me, verse 38, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, this living water, what was he talking about? Because he's saying, if you come to me, I will give you living waters. And if you drink from me, from my living water, you would also receive living water. When you drink from my living water, you will possess living water. In other words, I have this life. If you take from that life from me, you yourself will possess that life. What is this river of living water? He says, by this he meant the Spirit. Okay, we've been talking about receiving the Spirit. So come and receive the Spirit from me, he's saying. But then, on what account will you receive the Spirit? By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Do you see it? That receiving the Spirit is on account of believing in him. That's what he says. It's not on account of doing something else after believing. He's saying at this point when he's with the disciples, they haven't received. But on account of believing in him, they would receive. But he says later. Why later? Well, it tells you what happens. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given. Why? Since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the later of those who believe receiving the spirit was going to happen when Jesus was glorified. When was Jesus going to be glorified? Well, his glorification was coming in his resurrection and then his ascension. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But the question becomes this. If you receive because you believe, what is the result of that, rec of that receiving? He said, rivers of living water. You would also have that. What does he mean by that? Because now he's saying, if you receive, if you believe, you will receive. What is the result of it? Has he spoken about that before? Well, go back to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man who is part of the Jewish elite. He is called Nicodemus. He's part of the Sanhedrin. That is the 70, um, uh, ruler, the, the 70 rulers. Um, well, it's like a, like almost like a, a group of people who politically led Israel, the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish political leaders. They were under the Roman Empire and under uh, King Herod. But they, they led. They, they, they were theologians, and they were wealthy, they were well-educated, and this Nicodemus 
Almost all of them hated him, but this Nicodemus was fascinated by Jesus. And so he came to meet Jesus to ask him some questions. And when he asked him the questions, at first he was just even like, we're, we're intrigued. This is in John chapter 3. We're intrigued because you do these powerful things and no one can do that except God is with them. And Jesus really saw through what he was saying. Look, he said, Nicodemus, don't think it's just by looking at what I am, the things that I'm, I'm doing that will, will get into the kingdom. No. For you to get into the kingdom, you must be born again. He says that in um, verse 3 of chapter 3. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, born again? What kind of rebirth? Can I go into my mother's room? And Jesus then says, no, in verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and the spirit. That is, there is a new birth of the spirit, a new birth of the spirit. You are born by your mom, but there is a new birth of the spirit. When you receive the Spirit, He gives birth to you again. And you say, okay, I hope that's tied to our belief. Is that tied to the belief in Jesus? But Jesus said exactly it's tied to belief in Jesus. By the time you get to verse 14 to 15, as it's concluding his discussion with Nicodemus, what does he say? Before you to get this new life, you need to receive the Spirit. But for you to receive the Spirit, guess what? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who does what? Believes. May have what? Eternal life in him. You are birthed. You are given birth to you. You are born again. And being born again means you receive another kind of life. Not your human life. Eternal life. But the eternal life that you receive is on account of your belief in Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ... The spirit that you are born with, the spirit that you receive, is the one that gives you that new life. Has he spoken about this before? Yes. And this takes us all the way to John chapter 1. You see, in John chapter 1, 1 to 18, you get the summary of the entire book. The summary of the entire book. And in the beginning, you see that God, in the beginning was the, um, was the word, and the word was with God. So we have this, word was with God, and the word was God. So the word is one person of the Godhead. There was the, uh, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The Word, which is the Son, becomes human flesh. But before that, he says, before the Son was going to come, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. You start to see that in verse 4, 5, 6, 7. And John was going, John the Baptist was going to go before um, uh, the Word who was coming into the world. John was going to go. And while John was going to do something, the word was going to do another thing. And here's what he says in verse 12 of chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, who received the word, who is Jesus, those who did what? Believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Adoption. Children born not of natural descent, so it's not like your, your first birth, nor of human decision or your husband's will, but they were what? Born of God. So you see the new birth again. But now, it just says God, but we know it's God the Holy Spirit on account of your belief in God the Son. And so we have John the Baptist who is going to do something. He has an identity. But then there is also this word that is coming. And so at a certain point, John starts his ministry. And when he starts his ministry, people are trying to find out who he is. And they're asking him, are you the promised prophet, the promised Messiah that should come? And at some point, John is like, look, I'm baptizing people in water. But you see, the significance of my ministry is to prepare people. There is a way and a life that you are living that will not get you into the kingdom. 
repent of that life. And the symbol of repenting of that life is that you, I baptize you. But it is keeping a preparation for the one who will give you something that will enable you to live the new life. It will enable you to live the new life. Someone is going to give you something that is going to enable you to live the new life. I am the forerunner of that person's ministry. And of course, we're talking about Jesus, but what was the identity that John knew him as? Yeah, so we go to John 1, 33 to 30, uh, John 1, 33 says, and I, that is John the Baptist, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize in water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain. Remember I said, Jesus said, come and drink of me. And the drinking of me, because I have rivers, I have water, and if you drink of me, you would also have that water. He said, he spoke about the Spirit, and we said, why? Because the Spirit descended upon him. And so he said, the one who you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will do what? Baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, we said it is about believing, receiving, and what? Reliving. You get new life because you receive the Holy Spirit on, your, on account of your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But this word, receiving the Holy Spirit that we've been seeing in John, he takes you all the way back to saying that receiving the Holy Spirit is the same thing as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if it is those who receive the Holy Spirit that are then received new life, then the question is, if receiving is equal to baptism of the Holy Spirit, then what are we talking about? You see, the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like receiving the Holy Spirit. What is it about? It is that so that what we know, what we know, objectively, is what we feel and what we're able to live out. That Holy Spirit, remember John is trying to tell them there's an old way of life you must stop. But you need something to enable you to live the new way of life. In other words, the Holy Spirit coming to your life, giving birth to you, leads to your transformation. It leads to you now obeying God. It leads to you now producing fruit. You actually showing forth evidence of the new life. So that's why when Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, he says, the Holy Spirit has a fruit, and this fruit can be seen in different expressions. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, if you've truly received the Spirit, if you've truly been baptized in the Spirit, then you will live a new kind of life that is characterized by these kinds of, of characteristics. Love, joy, peace. Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus said, some people say that they are, they are doing wonderful things in my name, but I can tell you that some of those people are not of me. Why? Because by their fruit, you will know them. Do they produce the right character? And so, what you have in the gospel is not only that you receive a new status, but you receive a new life. You receive a new life. And it's a tragedy many times that you say, well, there are people that claim to have the Holy Spirit, but then their life seems out of kilter. It doesn't seem consistent. And so this is the I dimension. And I do want to say more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it has other dimensions. And still, again, try to prove and show us how 
this language of baptism of the Holy Spirit and receiving the Holy Spirit are the same one and the same thing. So that takes me into the next phase because John, if you notice in John chapter 20, we read chapter 20 verse 22. But what happens before t- verse 22, John 20, 22 is verse 21. What is the reason he says receive the Holy Spirit? Why? He says in verse 21, again Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me on mission, I am also sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit was so that he could send them. Now, that was John. Now, let's look at whether Luke can bear witness to that as we move to the second part, which is the gospel spread. Now, if you go to the book of Acts from chapter 1, Jesus is about to leave his disciples. He's resurrected. He says that he was with them for um, about uh, 40 days. He was teaching about the kingdom. And then they asked him whether he was about to restore the kingdom. And he said, look, that's not for you to know now. But let me restate to you something that you should have known from the beginning. And it's all about baptism. He says, remember, this is Acts 1, 5, and 8. For John baptized you with, John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember John chapter 7 said, which those who believed in him were later to receive. Now he calls that receiving or the giving of the Spirit. He says, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then, the, one of the reasons for that, he tells you very clearly in verse 8. But you will receive power. He didn't want to send them out without power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then... Having received that power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Why? Because these same guys, when Jesus Christ was crucified and when he was risen, they were hiding. And it was like, you cannot, you are shown, you show yourself to be so weak. You cannot go on my mission without the Holy Spirit who gives you power. You cannot go on my mission without the supernatural life to be true witnesses. To be true witnesses to confront evil, but also to receive the power to be transformed by that. Because there's a way you can just know certain things, and yet you deny the power. They say people have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. So Jesus lays, if you like, the framework for Gospel spread in the book of Acts. It will be first, the Holy Spirit descends. Second is that they will start becoming witnesses. And the witnesses will spread from where? The city of Jerusalem. And then all Judea and Samaria, that's regions, just immediate regions, Judea and Samaria. And then the ends of the earth, that is to Gentiles. Right? Judea and Samaria is both Jews and people who are mixed Jews and mixed other races. That's the Samaritans. So Jerusalem first. Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay, was that fulfilled? This giving of the Holy Spirit for this spread, was that fulfilled? We looked at the I, but what about the them? He tells you this is what I want to do. So now let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 4 to 8 and 11. So now the Jews are celebrating another feast of theirs called the Feast of Pentecost. It was their second major feast. And you don't forget that a lot of the Jews are dispersed, not just in Jerusalem, they are dispersed all around the Roman world. And some of them, it's like the concept of what we call IJGBs, right? IJGBs, you know what IJGBs are? I just got back. So these are Nigerians who were abroad and they moved back. Or maybe like Nigerians coming for, for at, the end of, at the end of the 
year, uh, you know, to come and celebrate Christmas, end of the year, and all of those things. Some Nigerians were never born in Nigeria. They have Nigerian names, but they're not born in Nigeria. They may have been born in certain parts of Europe, and they may have been born in, you know, some other parts of the Western world, right? But now they all come back. And that's the same thing with the Jews. They had Jews in diaspora. Many of them did not actually speak Aramaic, the language, uh, or Aramaic, the language spoken in Judea, um, um, or, 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 or Hebrew. They didn't. They spoke the different languages of the different regions of the Roman Empire that they were in. And so that's why on, so when Jesus ascended to heaven, these people were waiting for the Holy Spirit. 120 of them were in a room. And then the Holy Spirit came. And so verse 4, we take it up from there. This is around the Feast of Pentecost. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to do what? Speaking other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. Remember? Jerusalem. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, that is a region, they are uneducated people, right? How did they learn this language? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? We hear them, verse 11b, we hear them declaring the wonderful works of God. What is happening here? Let me first tell you, this is not telling you how after you have believed, it's not setting a blueprint for after you have believed, how then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. That isn't what is happening here. I know many of us understand it to be that, but something more profound is happening here. Now, there is something about speaking in tongues here. We'll talk about that later. But there's something profound about the tongue speaking here. And I don't want you to forget it. Now, remember, in Genesis chapter 11, in Genesis chapter 11, these people, after our sin was multiplying through the earth, right? You got to a situation where some people wanted to build a tower, a temple, to their own name to reach to heaven. It was called Babel. And what happened at that point, it says that all people spoke one language. And that one language that they spoke was also symbolic of their one rebellious motive, to be gods to themselves. And so what happened was God came down and judged them. And his judging them was to split the language. It practically worked out, that, uh, it practically worked out um, uh, 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 to the effect that they couldn't continue to build because they were now confused. But also symbolically, it showed the confusion that those who turn against God and united against God would actually really be scattered among themselves. And so at that point, the different languages in the world was about the division of the world. It was showing the division of the world, God's judgment upon the world, to divide. That was our Babel. And immediately after Babel, in Genesis chapter 11, we have Genesis chapter 12. And it was there that God called Abraham, saying, if you notice, I have just cursed Babel. I have cursed humanity, the ground, in Genesis chapter 3, and I have further cursed Babel. So that you now have nations of the world. That the nations of the world, as they present themselves, are under a curse. It is symbolic of being under a curse. But God then tells Abraham, what? In you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. He doesn't say that I will make the nations of the earth not have any other language. He's saying, as they are dispersed this way, I'm going to bring a blessing, not a curse, through you. 
Now, we've looked at the story and the development of Abraham, how that turns to Israel, how that turns to David, eventually it comes to Jesus Christ. But I want you to show at Pentecost that fulfillment, that the fulfillment, Babel, if you like, was overturned. And it gave way to the blessing of Abraham. Why? Because at Babel now, all of a sudden, the languages are not taken away. But that when God pours out his spirit, people from different places are now hearing what? A new language. It is not about ethnicity. It is that people now are united in their motivation not to praise themselves, to build a city after themselves, after the worship of their own selves, but now they are now declaring the wonderful works of God. It was a foretaste of what was going to happen. You see, in this, God in pouring out his spirit and all of them are hearing the wonderful works of God being spoken in different languages. Abraham's blessing was now being fulfilled through the person of Jesus Christ. How can I say that? Well, first of all, look at how Peter, who then comes to interpret what's going on, he, you see he connects it to the gospel. He first connects it to Joel to say God has promised this in the prophet that he will pour out his spirit one time. But then he now says, but Joel was also pointing to the gospel in Jesus Christ. Look at what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. Peter now speaks. No, because some people thought they were drunk. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, he's quoting directly from what the prophet has said hundreds of years ago. I will pour out my spirit on what? All people, that is, all categories of people. Sometimes you people define the all people in terms of ethnicity. That's why different people are hearing the wonderful works of God. But some people de um, define those, uh, the different categories of people through gender. And so that's why it says your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Sometimes it is about age dis uh, dis uh, distinctions. And therefore it says your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. There is no... There is no division here. The division, the divi dividing lines through which we normally divide humanity has been collapsed because they have all received of the same spirit. Even social lines are being blurred. He said, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. He's saying, this is the explanation for what you are seeing. On what ground did it happen? He now goes to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. How did the Spirit come? I'll tell you how. Remember John chapter 7 verse 38? Jesus was meant to do what? He was meant to give the Spirit. He was meant to give the Spirit. Rivers of new life. It's Jesus that will give the Spirit, but he had to be glorified first. Right? Look at Acts chapter 2 verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, part of the gospel, and we are all witnesses to it. Exalted to the right hand of God, Part of the gospel. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, gospel, Lord and Messiah. Do you understand? Jesus, Peter is saying this Holy Spirit that is poured out is on account of the gospel. Remember, the gospel is about Jesus and his work. And he tells you, crucified, risen, Lord of the whole world. And now, pouring out his spirit. In other words, the evidence that Jesus has been coronated in heaven, on earth, the evidence of that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first time it happened was at Pentecost. 
How do you know that they received the Holy Spirit in them? Well, the Spirit then brought about a phenomenon of them speaking in other languages. Reversing the curse of Babel and fulfilling Abraham's promise. Again, why do I say that? That is, how do you see this connection of what Jesus Christ had done, the gospel, how we believe faith in the gospel, and then how that fulfills Abraham's promise? Am I overstretching that? And should we not just stick to, he said speaking in tongues, we are speaking in tongues and believe. Am I overstretching that? I don't think so. Open to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, verse 8, we read verse 8, 13, and 14. Paul has just, he's trying to tell us about Abraham and how um, um, God was going to justify the uh, people uh, through Jesus Christ, but by, uh, in the same way Abraham had faith. And this is what he says in verse 8, 3, verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. What is this veiled announcement of the gospel to Abraham that was given? All nations, Gentiles, not just the people that will come from you, the Jews. All nations that were cursed before will be blessed through you. That was the gospel. So how is that fulfilled? Look at verse 13. It's the same narrative. Paul is just taking you through the same narrative. Verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How is the curse that came on the nations reversed? Christ became the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. That is Christ on a tree. That is Christ on the cross. That is the gospel. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham, that he will be the father of many nations, might come to who? Not just the Jews who like to say that we're Abraham's children, but it might come to all the Gentiles. How? Through Jesus Christ. So that you don't think that the blessing of Abraham that will come to us is through dollars, is through naira, is through health. No, it is coming through who? Jesus Christ, where? Hung on a pole. And then you say, okay, yes, I get that. Okay, all nations, Jesus Christ. After all, he said the disciples should go to all nations. But what does this have to do with the Spirit? So that by faith, gospel phase one, status, by faith, we might do what? receive the promise of the Spirit. How does Abraham's blessing come? Abraham's blessing comes by faith in Jesus Christ, who was cursed for the curses that went through the nations, and then on account of receiving Jesus Christ and believing in him, subjectively, he now gives you his Spirit. If you, if you believe, you will receive if you believe the, uh, Jesus Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Let me further make that point. Remember, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Peter received, he, he, he preached the gospel, right? He talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. He talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He talked about the lordship of Jesus. On account of the Holy Spirit coming and people heard other tongues, what did the people then ask? And what did Peter respond? Verse 36, they then said, 37, when the people heard, that is, they just finished hearing what he said in verse 36, that let all Israel know that this Jesus who you crucified is now Lord, God has made him Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were caught to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, we know that, and be baptized every one of you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptized for, in, in water. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? Like, yeah, that's true. That's how we respond to the gospel. Uh-huh. And if you do that, you'll be a good Christian. And then, if you tarry, and if you really want it and you ask, over a period of time, he will then baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said, right? Is that what Peter said? No, Peter said exactly what has been consistent with John, exactly what was consistent with, with, with Paul in Galatians, exactly what's consistent with, that, with this Acts chapter 2 we're reading. He now summarizes it. If you repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It comes together. Believing, the, uh, sorry, if you believe, you will receive. And when you receive, you will relieve. And so when we believe, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or we receive the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul later can say that in verse, uh, Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. In other words, there is no such thing as a bapt- an unbaptized, or there is no such thing as a Christian that is not baptized in the Holy Spirit. If there is a Christian that is not baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you can say that there is such a thing as a bachelor who is married. Or you can say there is such a thing as a Caucasian who is black. The promise of the Messiah comes with the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Messiah was the one who was going to baptize them, those that believe in the Holy Spirit. You see, but but, but, but what about Acts chapter 8? It seems like people believed and then they received the Holy Spirit after. That's very good. Because Acts chapter 8 will move to, and then you say, but what about some other people, some Gentiles as well? What's going on? Ah, you see, remember what Acts 1.8 was talking about. Acts 1.8 said, you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. All of this we just read now happened in Jerusalem. But it says that you'll also be my witnesses where? In Judea and Samaria. And then the ends of the earth. And so, you would see that Acts 1.8 was actually fulfilled by the time we get to Acts chapter 11. And you can see that by the way the church is being named. In three verses that we've put together, you will see that the name of the church kept changing. So you see Acts 8.1, Acts 9.31, and Acts 11 verse 26. Acts 8.1, 9.31, 11 verse 26. We've seen what happened in Jerusalem, right? Now, notice how it starts to change. In Acts 8.1, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church where in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem. And we knew the church in Jerusalem happened because of what happened that day. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the apostles were in Jerusalem, but then some people started to go to where? Judea, the other Judean regions and Samaria. There was a church in Jerusalem, then people started going to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. Then when you get to Acts 9.31, on account of what some of those people were doing there, guess what the church is called? Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria. Ah, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now they've been witnesses in, Ju- in Judea and Samaria. And it says that I enjoyed a time of peace and strength and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord. Okay. Then 
go to Acts 11, verse 26. Acts 11, verse 26, second part of it says, So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Church where? In Jerusalem? Or is it the church in Judea, Samaria? No. It says they met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The church where? The disciples were first called Christians were at Antioch. Antioch was a place in Syria where the region was for the Gentiles. How did this happen? How did that happen? How did it move from Jerusalem uh, from, from, uh, to, uh, Samaria, to Samaria and Judea and then to the ends of the earth? Well, quickly, let's look at uh, uh, Acts 8. Philip was one of those that went, was after the persecution. And he went as they were going. People were preaching the Messiah. So in Acts 8 verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. But when, verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, in water. When the apostles, verse 14, in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, understand when they said the St. Peter and John. It's not, it wasn't like that. You see, Jews and Samaritans had a long history of hating each other. In fact, if you remember, and the, the, the hating each other was not just on ethnic grounds, because the Jews saw the Samaritans as a mixed breed, and they were, right? They weren't pure Jews, right? But then they also had theological distinctions. The, 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 the Samaritans said, ah, they were the real people of God. They had Jacob's well. Then they had their own temple on Mount, Mount Ebal or Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews had their own temple, right, in Jerusalem. And so if you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus Christ had an encounter with a woman at the well, Jacob's well. And when Jesus was talking to her, she noticed he was a Jew, and she started to have a theological dispute with him. Ah, you guys said that worship is in Jerusalem. We, we say that we worship on this mountain. We also have Jacob's well. Who really is it? Jesus said, look, let me tell you something. Let me first tell you something. In terms of inheritance, so in terms of where the promise is coming, Right? The Jews have got it, not you Samaritans. Right? The Messiah is coming from the Jews. Okay? So the temple in Jerusalem is the legit temple. Right? Not you people's temple. However, woman, a time is coming. It is not about ethnicity now. A time is coming and now is where true worshippers will worship God in spirit and truth. For they are the ones that God seeks. A time is coming where the true worship of God will not be according to your ethnic boundaries. It's not about Judea. It's not about Samaria. A time is coming when the Messiah will enable true worshippers to worship God in spirit and truth. And I am that Messiah. In other words, Jesus was saying, whether you're a Jew or you're a Samaritan, you can come through him. And so Peter and John the, and all the apostles, when they heard Samaria had received it, they're like, could it really be that these people have really believed in God? Could it really be? What evidence can we see? And so when they heard that Philip had preached and they believed, they said, we must go and check. And when they went to check, they now said, all right, you know what? Let us... Lay hands on them. Verse 15, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they did what? Receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, at this point, this is an epochal, movement, an epochal moment. The church is just starting. Is God really going to bring in the Samaritans into his new people? Who is going to give the validation of that on the earth? It could not be anybody else but the apostles. How would the apostles know that God has truly validated the Samaritans? 
if he gave them the spirit just as he gave to them. And that is exactly what's happening here. After that, we don't hear that Samaritans after, just like we don't hear that Jews believed and then they waited for a long period of time before they received the Holy Spirit. In the same way, we don't hear after that that Samaritans waited for a long time and received the Holy Spirit after they believed. And then the final one was going to happen in Acts chapter 10 and it was relayed again in Acts chapter 11. What happened? Peter is now sent to the house of a Gentile after having a dream that God had given to him. Where in that dream, God told him to eat some food and he said, I can't eat it, they are unclean. And he said, don't call what I have made clean unclean. God was preparing him for an encounter. What was that the encounter? He sent him to the house of a Gentile. Normally, Peter, as he said to them in Acts chapter 10, I shouldn't even come to your house. I can't even come as a Jew into the house of a Gentile. That is how Jews saw Gentiles. They could not even enter their house. They would have called them unclean. That's why God was saying, those who have made clean don't call unclean. So then Peter then preached the gospel to them. And as he preached the gospel to them, as he was preaching the gospel to them, something remarkable happened. And so when he, the thing happened, he went back to Jerusalem to explain to them. Notice Peter was the one that spoke in Acts chapter 2. Notice Peter and John were in Samaria. And now, as you talk to Gentiles, who is there again? Peter. Because Peter was the first apostle that Jesus said was going to lead. Upon, you, upon this rock I will build my church. That was Peter. But and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so, Peter has relayed what happened there. In Acts chapter 11, verse 15 to 18. As I began to speak, what happened? The Holy Spirit, what? came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. What is the beginning? Acts chapter 2, the same way the Holy Spirit came on them, he came on us. When did it happen? Just as I was speaking. As I was speaking. Not, I was speaking, then there was some time, and then the Holy Spirit came. Not, I was speaking, and then they received, they received this, uh, they, 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 they were born again, and then later that, they, they wanted the Holy to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. No. As I was speaking the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit came on them as at the beginning. Then I remembered, for you to know that it was not just what you say, I have, they received the Spirit, they weren't baptized in the Spirit. Well, it says in verse 16, then I remember what the Lord said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who what? Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to think I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance. They said they believed. Here it said they granted repentance. Why? Because repentance and belief are the same, two sides of the same coin. And it was on account of repentance and belief. He said, God has granted them the repentance that leads to what? Life. If you believe, you will receive and you will relive. And notice how everything comes together. The giving of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, is also referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this was here the first time it happened to Gentiles. To Gentiles. And what is happening? Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled in a miniature small way. That is what Luke is trying to tell you. Luke is not trying to tell you that you wait to receive the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit after. No. Luke is saying what John has also said. But Luke is showing you the history of how what was promised in John and promised in the other Gospels, how it now was materialized, both in 
in Jerusalem first, in Judea and Samaria next, and then with the Gentiles. In fact, later in Acts chapter 11, you'll see how it then happened in Antioch. Acts 11.20, some of them, however, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is how you now started to see it in a grander scale. And after Paul's missionary journeys was really the fulfillment of taking this thing to the Gentiles, such that the end of the book of Acts is... Paul in the capital of the Gentile city, of the, the capital Gentile city. Acts starts, uh, the book of Acts starts with the capital, the spiritual capital city, Jerusalem. It ends in the Gentile capital city, Rome. But notice these things are repeated over and over again. Somebody is going to say, what about Acts chapter 19? Well, maybe you can ask me that in the comment section because I do need to move into something else. But I do want you to understand what we were saying were the beginnings. It wasn't meant to be so that over now, um, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't paradigmatic. It wasn't giving us a, a paradigm that what happens first is that you, get, you, you become saved and then you wait for the Holy Spirit. No, if you repent and believe you will receive the gift of the Spirit, and receiving the gift of the Spirit is the same thing as being baptized in the Spirit. I must move on to something. So, we've talked about how, that's how it spread. Now we must talk about the community, the we, all right? And this is where I'm meant to spend most of my time, and I said this should have been one hour. Now, what, when we receive the Spirit, and we've received new life, that new life is new life. It grows. When my child is born, right, I expect to see that child grow. You nourish that child, and then you train up that child to be able to hear the voice and follow the voice of his father, right? And the child grows. And so when we receive this new life, we are meant to grow in it. Now, this is really important because one way of couching that language is that we have to be continually filled with the Spirit. The mistake that some people make sometimes is to equate being baptized in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, because you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it said they were filled with the Spirit and you are waiting for them to be baptized. Now, even though it just says they were filled with the Spirit, don't equate them. They are associated, baptism in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit are associated, but they are not equated. They are not equated. They are associated, but they are not the same thing. How do I know that? All right, just a quick one. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, it says what? that the disciples, including Peter and all of these people, right, they were filled with the Spirit. All of them, Acts 2 verse 4, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues that the Spirit enabled them. Okay, they were faced with a certain situation where they were being persecuted and they were told not to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ again. And in Acts chapter 4 verse 31, some of these same people, these same people that were filled with the Spirit in Acts 2 verse 4, says, in Acts 4 31, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaking and they were what? all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Listen to me. You are only baptized and filled, uh, you're only baptized and receiving, you are only baptized and receive the Holy Spirit once. But you can be filled multiple times by the Spirit. To be filled by the Spirit is really to be controlled by the Spirit. It's where the filling word is, is not being filled like, like uh, water filling in a cup. It is the effect of being filled. It's like when water enters into um, a ship, 
And because of that, you cannot control the ship with the rudder again. It's the water that is now controlling it. And basically, it's about being controlled with the Spirit. So Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, rather than being controlled by drunkenness, alcohol, and being, uh, rather be controlled by the drunkenness of alcohol, that be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be uh, filled, uh, uh, yeah, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, which controls you to a certain way of life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So in other words, those who have received the Holy Spirit are meant to what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, that's why he says also, though you have, been, you have received the Holy Spirit, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Though you have received the Holy Spirit, quench not the Holy Spirit. But rather do what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Or in Galatians chapter 5, it says, walk alongside the Holy Spirit. Though we receive the new life, we are meant to grow. And we are meant to experience, enjoy life in the Spirit. But you are not meant to do that alone. And the danger of a lot of Christianity today is trying to be individualistic. Notice, after Peter gives the sermon and they ask, what shall we do? What follows the giving of the Holy Spirit? After the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 and all the tongues speaking and all that, what follows? After he says the people believed, what follows? Acts 2 verse 47 follows. And what happens, what you'll find there is that people began to meet together and there were about eight things that he listed. On account of them meeting together, there were eight things. Notice, Acts 2 verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles. Okay, verse 45, verse 46 says, Every day they continued to what? Meet together in the temple court. In other words, the people who were saved and received the Holy Spirit knew that the spirit that was in all of them was bringing them together in a community. So what did they do? They met regularly. They met regularly as in to experience to enjoy and to grow in the life of the Spirit. As they met together, they could be filled with the Spirit. And this was then expressed in eight different things. What were the things? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, they learned together, one. Then they fellowship, that is, they commune together, two. They committed the, uh, to the breaking of bread, that is, they ate together, three. To prayer, four. Everyone was filled with awe at many wonders and signs. That is, they saw wonders and signs. 5, um, verse 44, uh, 45. They saw property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They practiced generosity. 6. And then they broke bread. I've already said they ate together. Uh, broke bread in their homes and ate together. Then verse uh, 47, 7, they were praising God together. That is, they were praising and singing. Ephesians 5, 18, after it says that be filled with the Spirit, it then says you should be singing to one another in spiritual songs. And then the eighth thing, also in verse 47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They not only evangelized, they integrated converts. In other words, this is what Life in the Spirit is about. It is not you living the spiritual experience on your own. You were not baptized to be alone. You were baptized to be in the body of Christ. And this takes me to Paul. We have looked at Luke in Acts. We've looked at John uh, in the book of John. Now let's go to Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Look at what Paul says. 
just echoing what Luke is trying to show us. Paul says it in more theological language, but he, he, leaves, he gives us metaphors. Just as a body, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. You see me? Now, I am one person, but I have two eyes. And I have one nose. I have one mouth. I have ten fingers. I have ten, 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 ten toes. All of these are different parts of my body, but they are connected to my body, one body. And he's saying, look, in the same way, Christ is one body. If you look at John chapter 15, it says, one vine, different branches. So Christ is one body, but has many parts. And then he says, remember I said, you are not baptized in the spirit for yourself. He says, for we were all. Remember, it says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all. He says, we are all. For again, that shows you again, it's not that some people are baptized in the spirit and others no. He said, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, again, those different categories. And we're all given to drink of the one spirit. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but many. In other words, Paul is saying that there is one body of Christ, even though there are diverse people. And the way he also shows that diversity is that the spirit, that one spirit, because one body, because there's one spirit and there's one Lord and there's one God, right? But yet there are many different kinds of people. And so that one spirit that has been given, that one gift of the spirit, he then gives gifts to different people. He distributes them. As he wants to show the unity and diversity. He distributes these diverse gifts so that the diverse gifts can help the one body. He gives these diverse gifts to the diverse people of the one body so that they serve one another. One spirit, one body, diverse gifts, diverse people. Unity and diversity. So look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 and 11. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same. One spirit distributes them. All these are the work of the one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. In other words, when we then commune together, look at my body. It's not one mouth, and the one mouth does not make the one body. No. The different things. The mouth benefits from the ears. I can't say, I can't respond to somebody without hearing, but the mouth does not hear. It benefits from the ear and then responds. And so the spirit works in that same way in the church. In every local, every local church, he then gives these gifts, but he distributes them as he wills. He doesn't give one gift to everybody. He gives different gifts to different people so that those different people can come together as one people. Which is why in verse 28 to 30 of that 1 Corinthians 12, he, he explicitly tells you, I am not giving the same gift to different people. He even rhetorically asks it after explaining it so that he can further emphasize it. Verse 28, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, 
and then miracles, and then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and different kinds of tongues. Do you see the beauty? Man, if you are not in a church, if you are not in a healthy church, can I appeal to you? You cannot do this thing on your own. The Holy Spirit that was given to you was not there to give you to experience life on your own. God wants you to experience new life. He wants you to experience new life, but to also enjoy and grow in it. And that's what part of the benefit of the gospel. That what you know can also be what you feel and what you grow in. Join a church because even though you may have the gift of healing, you will not have the one of guidance. You may not have the gift of teaching. So he places all of these things in his body and then just to reemphasize it, he rhetorically asks. And I want you to answer me based on what you have seen here. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Oh. You see, the fact about, I'm, I'm zeroing in on tongues now. Why? Because that is the big thing in our day. But also, actually, in, the, in, the, in Corinth, as we we'll get to chapter 14, you see, it was a big thing. You see, the fact that God does not give the gift to all people, the same gift to all people, is so emphatic, is so clear. It's, as I've shown you in different parts, right, it's so clear that you wonder why it's up for debate. Most people will not say that all are apostles. Most people will not say all are prophets. But then when it comes to tongues, it's like if you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you'll be speaking in tongues. The problem first is that it's not if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you would have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells you that it doesn't give everybody the same gifts. Now, I've heard some other explanations. Some people say, well, you know, there is a difference between praying in the Spirit and um, the gift of tongues. Well, the problem with that is that if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it is the discussion about tongues that there you then see that he uses the word praying in the spirit. So they are saying the same thing. He doesn't give everybody the gift of tongues. And everyone is baptized in the spirit. Now, you see, the thing about the gifts is that the gifts can be used very destructively. Paul recognizes that. The gifts can attract us. And with certain kinds of gifts, some other gifts are more showy, and like, like tongues and, 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 and miracles and things like that. They can be very, very, they put you out in front. Or teaching and preaching, they put you out in front. And he says it can be very destructive for the body because there are two ways you can use the gifts. You can use the gift with self-love or you can, gift, you can use the gift with love for others. And that's why after 1 Corinthians 12, what comes after 1 Corinthians 13? What is 1 Corinthians 13 about? Love. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, and the first verse of 13 says this. Now, eagerly desire the gifts. Of course you should desire them. They come from the Spirit. And yet, as you are desiring it, I will show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way to use the gifts. And he then says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels... But do not have love. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, if I am a gong or a cymbal, I am making a sound. He's not saying that you are not using a gift, but he's saying that you are not a useful gift. It's not a useful sound. 
Why? Because it was born out of self-love, not love for others. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 and 14 verse 12, Paul says, this is the way to use it. Follow the way of love. If you read 1 Peter, when it talks about the gift, he says, love deeply. If you read Romans 12, when Paul talks about the gift, he says, uh, 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 the, the, he says uh, 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 that, we that we should love one another in verse 9. After he talks about the gifts in verses 3 to verse uh, 8, he then talks about love. So he says, follow the way of love, the most excellent way, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, the gift, and then the gifts are the abilities. The motivation of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit must be used with the same motivation of the Spirit. What is the motivation of the Spirit? Love for the people. Why? Because you are placed in a body. How is the body kept one? The body is kept one when we love one another. When we love one another, then the gifts that have been given to us will now be used for the sake of the people. And that's why in verse 12, it then says, Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. In other words, I was baptized in the Spirit. And therefore, I am going to have to be in the body. I'm going to have to be in a local congregation. And as I am trying to grow in the gifts of the Spirit, I'm doing it for the edification of the church. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love. But there was a problem in Corinth. And there is a problem with the church today. And please, listen to me closely. I am not coming here to bash anybody about speaking in tongues. If you have tuned into this thing thinking that that's what I'm going to do, no. Because I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe that speaking in tongues is both, uh, speaking in tongues is basically the generic gift of languages. And languages means intelligible speech. Intelligible speech means that it bears meaningful content. Now, I may not be able to understand the meaningful content. If somebody speaks Urobo to me today, apart from Migwa, Rendo, and Ogene, you will be a foreigner to me. I don't understand. Now, that doesn't mean that what was being spoken, the Urobo that is being spoken, is gibberish. It doesn't mean that it's nonsense. It just means that because I don't understand, it is not useful to me. Alright? So I believe in the gift of languages and that the gift of languages could either be human, xenoglossa, right? The gift of language is basically um, glossolalia. It could be xenoglossa, that is ethnic languages, or any kind of meaningful language. And that's why I think 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, both human and non-human. So I believe in the speaking in tongues because I think, I believe that the Bible speaks about it. I believe Paul and the Bible affirms that gift with all the other gifts. And honestly, the, the gifts of the Spirit that are written in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 5, uh, Romans chapter 12, um, 1 Corinthians 12, 18 to 20, all of those gifts, uh, sorry, 28 to 30, all of those gifts is not even exhaustive. But God even takes the gifts that we have that we will call secular gifts, your understanding of finance, your ability to sing. He uses all of that for the gift of the body. It is the commonwealth of the body of Christ. I believe in all those gifts. How do we serve each other in love? So I'm not bashing people speaking in tongues. But in the same way, because the Bible says so, that the gifts of tongue, is, uh, the gifts of tongue exist, we must also follow the same Bible in the use of that gift of tongues. And also say what the Bible says about the gift of tongues. Clearly, which is, we're all baptized in the Spirit, but we all don't speak in tongues. We all don't pray. We all don't use that gift. And so that's why in verses 4 to 5, he's saying, because of the way of love. Because of the edification of the body, there is a sense in which prophecy is greater than tongues. 
Because if everybody is speaking in tongues in the church, how does it benefit the hearer who doesn't understand that? It may benefit you personally because you can use it privately. You can use it for personal edification. But it doesn't benefit the church. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 verse 4 to 5. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church because people immediately understand prophecy. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, well, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And that is why Paul, who is affirming the gift of tongues, who himself says, I speak in tongues, says, when we gather together, notice what he says, verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in church I would rather speak five intelligible words, things people can understand, words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I find this to be so emphatic, people of God. And we must be careful how we use it because Paul even says when you come to a church and everybody is speaking in tongues, which again, I don't think everybody can have that gift just because they are baptized in the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. If everyone is speaking in tongues, he said, what do you think a non-Christian should think about that? He says it right there. He says, won't he say that you are all mad? But if the non-Christian comes in and words are being spoken that he can understand, he will say God is here. And so I'm saying to all of us, to some of us who say, no, I speak. I got this gift. I don't come against it. I'm not coming against it. I'm saying, one, were you like me? A number of years ago, I committed my life to Christ. And then I was told, this campus, all of us went through this on campus. I was told that now, after you have committed, I got baptized. After you got baptized, now you must be able to speak in tongues. How do I get that? You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are told to do a number of things to prepare for that. We have to pray. Then we were we, Unilag uh, Quadrangle, all right? And then after that, when we got to Unilag Quadrangle, I can't remember, somebody told us to say some things, you know? For some other people, there's a classic example. You know, just say, I tie my bow tie. 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 I tie. And once you just say, ah, I say you've got it. And literally, that was what happened. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable trying to say the thing I was trying, but other people started talking. The guy that was praying for me was saying, don't worry, just, I was speaking in English. I was praying in English. Say, you've been praying in English all your life. Now start praying in tongues. I tried, I tried, I tried. I spoke the thing. After a while, Omar, I did it for the guy. I couldn't speak in it. And then later, I had an, an encounter with God again. I really, really did a dedicated my life later. And then I was seeking the gift. I was seeking it. And I just started doing it. I started using it. But even though I thought, man, this thing is working well, I knew deep down inside that I didn't have it. And then 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, always haunted me. Do all speak in tongues? And I'm asking you, it's not, it, you don't have to feel like a second-class Christian because you don't. Just like if you don't have the gift of teaching. I believe I have the gift of teaching. I don't believe my wife, who has the Holy Spirit, has the gift of teaching. She is the first person that tells you she doesn't have the gift of teaching. But she's not a second-class citizen because she has the gift of hospitality, which I don't really have. Even though we're all called to practice hospitality, just like we're all, practiced, uh, you know, we're all called to pray. But I, she, I don't have her gifts. And there are people in our church that have, I don't have the gift of prophecy, but I know people who have. I wish I had the gift of healing, but I don't have it. 
I may have the gift of leadership. So what is it is that God doesn't want anybody to feel inferior. The gifts that we even feel are the, are the, the commonest gifts, he says, those parts, he says, God has bestowed even the greatest honor on them. Don't feel like a second-class citizen. You have the biblical backing to be able to say, I don't have to have this gift. If God gave it to me, I would like it. And I don't have to prove my being baptized in the Holy Spirit on account of that. No, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is for you to experience life in God. That is why, as I wrap up to a close on this, I should say this. If there's one way I think that this whole thing indicts all of us, is what about the gift of interpretation. Look at what Paul says. He says, this is how you demonstrate love. Remember 13 is about love? And he says, I will show you how love is being used when the gift is used for the, for the benefit of others. That's how love is demonstrated. And he says, the gift of tongues cannot be used for the benefit of others except what there is an interpretation. That's why God gave the gift of tongues and the gift of the interpretation of tongues. And that's why Paul then says he lays down a command. He lays down the command. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 13 and 27 to 28. The one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Should pray that they may interpret what they say because that is what leads to the application of all. So verse 27, he even speaks more emphatically. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak at one time. And then someone, look at it, must. It's a must. Someone must interpret. You say, hey, but what if there's no interpreter? Paul has already anticipated that, verse 28. If there is no interpreter, what should, what should happen? The speaker should speak, keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. See, so he's saying speak to himself and God. He said keep quiet so that people don't hear you. If you have to sit down and speak in tongues inside yourself so that people don't hear you, do that. But what we find in many, with, with many people today with zeal is that we all start giving reasons for speaking in tongues. No, that's praying in the Spirit. We are charging up our spirit. We are trying to see mysteries. We are trying to confuse the devil. Because if we speak in English, the devil can understand English. But if you speak in tongues, he can't understand it. No, guys, let's not do that. Let's not pay hard and fast with what the Bible is saying. Now, I understand this. People, the two kinds of people approach Paul, uh, this 1 Corinthians 14, you have the order camp and then you have the spontaneous camp. The order camp want to keep everything orderly and fittingly. And many times they fall into the trap and then say, you know what, there's no gift of tongues. There are, there are all this gift of healing, prophecy, all of those things that are not there. It's just the Bible. That's an overstretching of the order. Of order. But then there's the spontaneous camp. Don't inhibit the spirit. We can do what we like. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let's just sing. Let's just pray. You, 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 you pray for 15 minutes. 30 seconds is praying uh, in English. 14 and a half minutes is praying in tongues. That's the spontaneous camp. Which camp do you think Paul is, is really about? Look at verse 39 and verse 40. His conclusion of, his conclusion of 1 Corinthians 14. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Don't. You know that what he's saying? Spontaneous camp. I love you. Other camp, hear this. Other camp, hear this. Be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Then he now speaks to the spontaneous people. He now says, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. 
twos or threes, there must be an interpretation. I think one of the greatest indictments upon us is that I don't, I hardly see the gift of interpretation of tongues at work. You know why? How many times do you see it? No. You know why? Because we started with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for this, it's for the individual. We never saw it as for the community. Baptism of the Holy Spirit has been given to you. Now you can speak in tongues and now you can have mysteries. And it's just for you, it's just for you, it's just for you. So this individualistic nature of our Christianity, this individualistic nature of our relationship with God, this individualistic nature of our relationship with the Holy Spirit, then makes us want to now express this gift in an individualistic way, which was the problem at Corinth. But if we see the communal way, I really do believe we will have seen the gift of interpretation of, of tongues more at work because we know that we want to edify. So people who have that gift, that gift will not be latent. It will have been developed and it will have been used. Let us listen to what God is saying. I want to say, in closing on this thing, I do want to just say a number of things. Um, just eight statements that maybe can summarize this as I bring this to a close. Eight statements. Biblical facts about speaking in tongues. All Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit. One. The Spirit gives gifts to all for edification of all. Two. Like other gifts, not all have tongues. Not all speak in tongues. Three. Tongues consist of human and non-human languages. Four. Tongues are always intelligible, even if non-human. Five. Tongues can be used for private edification. Six. Tongues for the church need interpretation of tongues. Seven. Tongues aren't for new doctrinal revelation, charging one spirit, confusing the devil, etc., or any extra biblical usage. Please, before you are using the tongues for something and say you're experiencing something, does it accord with what the Bible says? Don't just go from your experience and try to misinterpret scripture. Your experience may be valid, but your articulation of what that experience is may be wrong. So, finally, the Holy Spirit, again, let's not forget, if you receive, if you believe, you receive. If you receive, you relieve. God wants to achieve so many things in you and with us. He wants to see the gospel spread, but he wants to see you grow so that the status that you receive can be experienced in your life. So that on the last day, Jesus does not say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because even though you said, I cast out demons in your name and I did this in your name, but he will, not say, uh, he will not say, I never knew you, because by their fruit you will know them. That's why he gives us his spirit. My son is my son by birth. It's a status he has. But I can hold my son and say, my son. When I tell him I love him, when I tell him you are my son, my son, my son, as I do with my children, I'm not making them my son. I am feeling what I know. And that's how God puts his identity on us in the Holy Spirit. He puts it on, upon us as his seal. And that seal is leading us to something else when God will show his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you are also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included when you heard. When you believed, you were marked with a seal. Believe and then marked with a seal. What's that seal? The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and glory. Do you see the other thing the Holy Spirit is pointing to our inheritance? What is this inheritance? 
Well, that's what we will be looking at in the next topic. That those who have a status now have a new life, but those who have new life in the spirit, they have an inheritance. What is the hope of a Christian? What is the gospel hope? That will be next week.